there's a few things I've been working on recently for this show that have felt like full circle moments for me. And this interview is definitely in that category. You'll understand why pretty early on in my conversation with Tracy Ryan. Tracy is a poet who lives in Western Australia. I first got in touch with her in 2019, discussing the possibility of going over there. In the end, we had this conversation online. Tracy has just put out her 10th collection, which is called Rose Interior. We talk a little bit about the poems in that collection here. We also talk about writing about one's own children, education, editing other people's work, and some deeply nerdy stuff around line breaks. This couldn't be more different to my last interview. I think there are no swear words in this conversation. I was sort of laughing to myself putting this together thinking, if you listen to Ursula and then Tracy, you might think that you're listening to two different shows. (laughs) But, you know, I can behave myself. I can behave myself as well. Something else that I've been thinking about bringing this episode together is the AMA that I did on the Slee Ricketts secret show recently. Towards the end of that conversation, Matthew was asking me what my goal was for this show, what my strategy is, and I was surprised at how difficult it was to answer those questions. I didn't really love my answers, although I'm told that they were fine. I think the fact is that I never really set out in making this show with a goal beyond educating myself. And a lot of the time I am running on instinct, kind of following my nose. But this interview, this conversation with Tracy reminded me of really the main thing that emerged pretty early on when I started making Poetry Says. And really, I think it's it's probably the most important thing that this show could do, which is to just invite people in. In the course of making the show, I have uh, had the, the pleasure of watching people who I knew as listeners put their first collections together and then put those collections out into the world. And that feels kind of amazing to think that maybe something they heard on here contributed a bit to the work that they were doing. And I hope that this conversation is part of that as well, because Tracy shares a bunch of really practical advice towards the end for poets who are in the beginning stages of their work. So I'm really happy to share a conversation with someone who is so experienced with you. I really hope you enjoy it. Yeah, this is wild. It's such a strange sensation to actually meet you, even via Zoom. Mm-hmm. Um, I I want to start by kind of telling you a little bit of a story about this 2008 book of yours, Scar Revision. Okay. My copy yeah. of which is here. So 2008, I was, I think, 26, mm-hmm. and I'd run out of stuff to do at uni. And I was working a very boring job and I was coming to terms with the fact that somehow I had not magically become a poet. And I bought this book, I think, purely off the strength of the title and the cover. Didn't know you, didn't know anything about poetry. Uh, And it was that book for me, I think, that 
opened the door and said, if you actually want to do this, you, you could do it. So oh, that's really wonderful to hear. Cause of course, as you know, as a poet, you never actually know who's out there picking up the book or where it goes, you know, you might get reviews or whatever, but there are people beyond that, that, uh, that read poetry. And so many books have done that for me too, particularly mm -hmm. when I was, uh, starting out, you know, when I was quite young. So that, that feels very good to know that, that it had that effect. Can you remember what those books were for you? Any, any examples of that? Yes. Um, I, when I was, well, actually, it wasn't just books. It was also when I was at school in about year 11, we got taken to hear a moved reading of poetry. So it was the poems that were on the syllabus um, for school, for literature, and it was professional actors reading them. And I just sat there blown away thinking, this is actually what I want to do if I could do anything that worked like that. And that was people like, uh, you know, the standard people who were on the curriculum before your time. So this is a long time ago, but Judith Wright, of course. Mm -hmm. And uh, and there was Browning and there was John Dunn. There was just about everything that you would imagine would be taught at school. And uh, so there was that. But then also I was um, at a friend's house and she had an anthology that had belonged to her older brother, had a little extract from the bell jar in it. So that actually wasn't poetry. It was a very, you know, poetic image kind of uh, excerpt from the bell jar. And I read that and just thought, I've got to find more of this writer. That sounds weird to say now because Sylvia Plath, of course, is so taught ubiquitously, always cited as, you know, Margaret Atwood once said there was a time when all women poets were either called like Plath or not like Plath. You know what I mean? It's just <laughs> something you can't get away from. But I also would be lying if I didn't say for me that that really was a, a moment of thinking once I got hold of the poems, thinking, okay, there's something here that's going to change everything. And Ted Hughes actually too. At that point, I then started to to read him. And when I started university, now I'm really uh, getting into how old I am. There were, because there was no internet then, they had in the very top floor of the university library, uh, cassette recordings of poems read by the poets. So, you know, uh, like official recordings. And I just used to sit up there and listen to Dylan Thomas reading his poems and Ted Hughes reading his poems. And it took a long time before I actually heard Plath reading hers on a recording, but uh, those were real treasures to me to find those in the library. And I used to wish I could just keep them, you know, take them home and keep them. And so for me, I think it really was not just the books, but the hearing either by actors or by the poets themselves, hearing that uh, reading of their poems, that uh, especially in the accents, in the case of both Thomas and Hughes, uh, to hear the Welsh accent and the Yorkshire accent and understand the rhythms and intonations of the poems that way was really something for me. Mm -hmm. I was about, I would have been 18 then. So this is going back to about uh, 1982, 83, 83 it was. So I was nearly 19. Yeah. Big moment for me. Well, I'm going to ask you to do exactly that now. Yes. I'd love it if you could read the poem Monitor. Yes. From Scarevision. Okay. Monitor. Your exhalations spread around the house. I hear your vital signs as once you heard my rhythms from inside. Like loved music, whose every cadence is familiar and waited for, your breath upon the night sings me to sleep. Sometimes it turns to talk, and I can only guess at what you dream. Clock, car, dog, bird. The markers that by day you fling at your surroundings now become a paratactic stream as if the mouth were under compulsion to continue regardless of the mind and of the dark. 
Sometimes a testing cry will call me in, should you lurch up in shock, to teach you how to sink again, my brave submariner. Could I still hear that with the naked ear? This lifeline, my reverse umbilicus, sign of a cyborg love, extends my reach even as senses fade. The more I slip, the more I grasp and turn the volume up. Thank you. So I have no idea what significance, like how significant that poem is for you Mm. today, but I didn't study poetry at school. I I studied um, Japanese and Mandarin at uni. Mm -hmm. And so coming to this book and reading, really reading poetry for the first time, Mm -hmm. when I read this, I didn't understand it at first. Mm -hmm. I didn't know what you were referring to. And then, but there was something in, I think, the line that ends, my brave submariner, that interested me enough. And I went back to the top and I saw that the title was Monitor. Mm-hmm. And I realized, oh, she's writing about a baby monitor. <laughs> <laughs> and that was the moment where I yes. realized that poetry was a different kind of thing. Mm-hmm. It rewarded a different kind of attention. Mm-hmm. And that that kind of effect was was something that one could achieve in a poem. Mm-hmm. I just reread it before we got on and realized it was in blank verse. So this, this right. is still unfolding to me. Okay. <laughs> but what does that, um, how do you feel about that poem now? Um, it brings back memories, obviously. Um, and it's a strange feeling because, well, our son is 19 now, coming on for 20. So it's, it's, it's one of those kind of, oh, yeah, moments. You know, there used to be that. Um, which seems so distant once you're out of that phase of child rearing. But there's also a kind of continuity there because I can see from the poem just as a little personal reference that I was already starting to get diminished hearing then. And the poem is slightly referencing that, um, though probably only I would click with that in talking about the senses fading. Um, And that's become like I'm not deaf, but that's become more so now. In fact, I was hoping today that you would have the visuals on so that I could see your face when you speak because that helps. So there's there's kind of, I suppose it's hard for me to get away from the biographical side of it. Um, and But, you know, I can still step back into that moment. You, I, I tend not to go back and reread my work. So it's always a bit of a surprise. Like you said, going back to it, you, you see different things. Mm-hmm. Um, and some things that I've written from very long ago, if I go back to them, that I don't seem, it seems as if I didn't even write them, except I know I must have because it's my life that's yeah. been, you know. So there's that strange sense of detachment that I don't know if you find this when you write a poem, that once it's gone and out there, you actually just want to do the next thing. And it feels a little bit strange when it comes back at you, but not an unpleasant strangeness in that case. And uh, and our son likes that poem. I wondered about just, that. Which is just as well. <laughs> I wondered about that because I feel I can see him in many of your collections and mm-hmm. I think I can see him in the last poems in your latest, in Rose Interior. In He's, part, yes. Yeah. Yeah, some of those are fictionalised or drawn from other people's experiences, but some of them from mm. his as well, yes. Yeah, there was a poem about going to the formal mm-hmm. and I read that and thought, oh, He's grown up. <laughs> yeah, it happens so fast. <laughs> a few poetry books and that there's a life, you know, from childhood to adulthood. It's quite remarkable. But it is a fraught thing, actually, because, of course, when your kids, at least the first time, if you have kids and your kids are young and you're writing, you don't 
perhaps give as much thought to exactly what you're writing as you do once you once they've grown a bit and you think, okay, well, this person's probably going to read this one day. But I think by that stage in my life, I was an older parent the second time around. I was what they used to, I think they now call it advanced maternal age. That's more of a, a polite euphemism, but it used to be called elderly, I think, if you were over 35 when you, you know, in pregnancy <laughs> terms, in obstetrical terms, uh, elderly, um, which, you know, it has its actual physical reasons, I guess. So I was 39 when our son was born. And that, I think, inflects the poems as well and is probably part of that sense of, you know, the, the separation and the being older is there in that poem too, even though, again, it might be something only I perceive in there. But Yeah. Mm. Yeah, that's interesting. I, I think I can hear that now that you mention it. Um, I want to ask you about the choice of subject. So there's a poem in Rose Interior called Request and mm -hmm. the lines, whatever you wouldn't look twice at, I'm yeah. asking for, mm -hmm. which to me seems to sum up your poetics. But I did interview a poet once, not that long ago on this show, who said he was really sick of reading poems about people's divorces uh -huh. and domestic situations uh -huh. when we could be writing about Mars. Okay. Uh, there's a, a book of yours called The Argument. You have three poems in succession there. One's about dust, one's mm -hmm. about mold, one's about mm -hmm. cobwebs. Or mm -hmm. put better, those are jumping off points yes. to talk about bigger things. Mm. But what would you say to a statement like that, that we should be writing on this cosmic rather than a domestic level? Well, to tell you the truth, I know many people have very firm ideas about subject matter and poetry and every era of poetry has has kind of tussled, I mean, going way back hundreds of years of what was fit and proper subject matter. And I just have never thought that there are any rules around that. Now, I might be tested on that and, you know, there might be some limits if you showed me a really shocking poem where I might say, no, no, that's too much for me in a poem, you know, too much information or too personal. But I've never thought that anything was beneath or above poetry. Maybe that's a bit grandiose, but I think that's true of art in general too. You know, not just poetry, but other arts too. And so for me, uh, the domestic, if that's where you have a lot of life experience, that's going to reflect in microcosm the big things. that I, I would hope that, and I'm not referring to the previous poet you're talking about specifically, but I would hope that that concept has kind of dissolved a bit, the idea that, um, you know, that... Uh, what is primarily but not only women's lives would be trivial or unimportant and that objective out there science these things are not separate they're all linked you know private life and personal life impinges on and is impinged on by science in illness in everything that we're living through say with the pandemic and so on um so i just don't see these things as separated and i also don't see any any uh hard and fast rule about what you can or can't where you have to turn your lens if you like when you make art of any kind i think mm. it's a freedom and i think it's very easy to be afraid of that freedom and think i'm i'm like they used to say when i was a kid in perth you're not louder <laughs> i just think you are a louder <laughs> you know you are a louder you just write what you and if you can make it work then that's its own justification that of course will be in the eye of the beholder to a degree but uh, just um, just don't have that sort of idea that you can write this topic and you can't write that topic. Just doesn't seem to doesn't seem real to me. So, but you know, I know it's an ongoing argument. So, and the reader doesn't have to pick it up. You know, that's true. The yeah, the reader is spared all this uh, back and forth. Mm -hmm. So, as I mentioned, 
the last section of poems in Rose Interior do deal with the pandemic and they deal with learning at home. Um, maybe to get into that, I might ask you to read Post-Storm, Still Pandemic. Yes, and there was a kind of uh, relief at getting past that really incredible storm uh, and uh, then realising that it wasn't going to be that simple with the, the wider problem. Post-Storm still pandemic afraid to look outside in case it shatters illusions we've come through this blinks but power stayed on the roof has held out there is turmoil noise last bluster yet worst has passed at night so blurred i couldn't tell wind from rain bad synesthesia all colors tossed together to make dark night was a tunnel only one way through City still stricken, our guilt. How can we rest and write while others dread? They tussle with neighbours who haven't cleared away or tied things down. Your fence is in my pool. Here with gaping space between us, it's more like this, direct interface. Is there a tree on the house? How did small ones fare in burrow or nest? What in the world is left? On Reunion Island, back with the 1918 flu, they say, after the first ravages, a cyclone came and washed it all away. Common disaster chasing off a worse. I hover here on the far side of the same ocean, wish for truth in it, the notion of harsh weather as unexpected cleansing. Thank you. Is that in blank verse too? I'm just noticing this again. It might be slightly. I haven't actually <laughs> thought since I... Uh, there's a bit of internal rhyme. It's roughly so, I think, roughly that kind of rhythm. I, the thing is, I've written a lot of uh, formal verse in the sen sense of metre and rhyme, but most often what I'm doing is something that's loosely like that. So it's it's almost never completely free verse, with some exceptions, but it's more often going to be um, largely metrical and sometimes end rhyme, sometimes internal rhyme. And that's just now, at this stage, I'm not saying it's not a conscious choice, but it's also just something that seems to happen when I write a poem. You know, there's always that playoff when you write a poem of whether, do I sit down and say I'm going to write it in this way or do I just start writing and see what comes? Mm. And it's, it's a bit of both, I think. Mm. Yeah. yeah. Well, there's sort of two directions I want to go in. One is to ask you about the line, the mm -hmm. poetic line, and then one is to ask you about that decision that you must have made at some point mm -hmm. to write poems about the pandemic. Mm -hmm. And I suppose I have been wondering and waiting to see how various writers will, what they will do, completely ignore it, mm -hmm. actually address it, and, and you very you very directly address it at the end of the book here. Mm -hmm. um, was there any hesitation in doing that? Um, no, not for me because since I get a lot of what I write from daily life, it was going to be impossible not to. And especially because like a large number of people across Australia, it, I was immediately, or we were immediately affected by the change in school situation, not as badly here in Western Australia as happened, say, in Victoria and elsewhere. You know, not the very long lockdowns like that, but still the whole schooling thing was, it's like you're not going to be able to pretend you can ignore what's happening in out, out there. Um, and so it would be odd if writing didn't reflect that. But also because I was working on this book that was taking the idea of houses and domestic interiors, personal interiors and exteriors, it seemed to me that 
suddenly a thing that many, many people had in common was being stuck in the house. And it would be strange for the book not to go there, for it not to look at that aspect, because that for many people was the first time that they experienced that kind of domestic confinement. You know, there's a, um, and for others not, for many people, say with disabilities or with heavy childcare, um, it was like, okay, now you're seeing what life is like for me, you know? You had this incredibly varied experience. And I thought that was um, uh, poetically very provocative and interestingly uh, interesting to write about um, socially as well, particularly mm. with regard to the schooling, because what might be a nightmare for one person might be I have to send my child off to school where they might catch a dreadful disease, remembering especially at that point there were no vaccines yet. And for other people it was like, you know, my child has different needs and cannot cope if they can't go to school and and the family doesn't have the resources to manage so you have this not only disparate but even opposing you know tensions here that um i think were very hard for people to resolve and and also in many cases for people to still somehow earn a living and pay their bills while juggling what was happening with their kids so so really that's why it had to go there for me if it's going to be a book that is about interiors and enclosure in the domestic space and uh, how that bounces around it uh, it was happening so <laughs> it wasn't gonna and I know what you mean because I've seen many people not and some people have made it like in fiction the subject of what they're writing about I've seen others who've written narratives that incorporate it smoothly and so it's part of the backdrop but it's not the focus and others like a particular Irish soapy that I'm addicted to <laughs> who made the decision when filming as the pandemic began to exclude it from the storyline and this soapy has always run on real time. So, you know, when it's Christmas, it's Christmas in the soapy. And when oh, it's um, wow. Easter, it's Easter and so on. And so it's very bizarre to watch the world in this little Irish village of the soapy, obscure interest, um, continuing as if there were no COVID, while the actors were actually cocooning and living in bubbles with each other so they could go on acting together and so on. It, it's not coming out in the storyline. It's become sort of timeless in a way. Oh, and wow. I guess there's always that option, but it wasn't an option for me. The poems at the end of the book are more specifically looking at the theme of education a lot of yes. the time. Yeah. And I wondered if the experience of the last couple of years changed the way that you that you felt about education and schooling because mm. it seems like in the poems you're sort of reassessing some of that. Yes. I suppose rather than just changed, possibly intensified or uh, caused development in it because I'd always had issues, <laughs> issues with the education system. Who doesn't? But um, what, why it interested me particularly was that I'd, we'd already had the experience before the pandemic of homeschooling for various reasons at various times. And so it seemed to me it was a strange thing to sit back and watch through the media, it becoming a reality for many more people than usual, particularly to the point where you'd get homeschoolers saying, what you're doing is not homeschooling. Somebody else is providing you with the lessons. You're just supervising. We have to do this from scratch. And so you get as diverse opinions within homeschooling communities, you get diverse reasons that people homeschool. For some, it's a religious thing. They don't like the secular school system, so they take their kids out and, you know, um, then you get others, a very large number of kids, it seems anecdotally, are homeschooled because of intensive bullying at school, whether that's from teachers or from fellow students or from both, or from some way in which they have different needs or diverse needs that can't seem to be met in the school system. So. Although the poems focus largely on the pandemic schooling from home situation, what's behind them is a long-term thinking about what schooling actually is. And when I was, I have the strange thing of having started a dip ed 
to become a teacher when I was young and I didn't finish it for various reasons and going back much later, so like in middle age and, do, and redoing it. But yes, when I was young and first doing those studies in education, I came across Ivan Illich. I don't know if you've come across his work at all, but no. back in the early 70s, he published a book called Deschooling Society, which is a fairly radical kind of book. And I'm not saying I would go with everything in it, but it's one of those books that flips your mindset and you start thinking, I've never looked at things in that way before. And I'll, I'll read a little quote from it to give you the flavour. School is the advertising agency which makes you believe that you need the society as it is. So it's fairly radical stuff. He kind of says that um, most of our learning happens either outside of school or if it happens in school, that's because that's where you're being held at the time that you're doing the learning. So it's happening possibly in spite of. Now, I have to balance that by saying that school can be a fabulous and wonderful experience for people, especially who might not get the kind of learning that they want outside the school environment. So it's not saying let's, for me, it's not saying let's do away with this altogether. It's a refuge for many people too, but it's mm. also a prison for others. And and I have to say that um, the two things really, one of which is that um, Anne Curtois and John Docker decades ago wrote an article about television in Australia, about Prisoner, you know, the series from long ago, Prisoner, in which they said that it was particularly popular with high school kids from 13 to 17. (laughs) And the the supposition was, both in their uh, essay and in other people's research, that it was something to do with actually reading the prison screws as teachers and the school environment as being like a prison. And so they could relate to the, the dramas. Okay, so there's that. And also on the one occasion that I've ever been into a prison, I was blown away by how much the actual architecture of the building reminded me of a school. And so I'm starting to sound as if I'm really down on school, but it's just really throwing around these ideas that what is confinement for some people may be in the case of school liberation for others. And it's similar to the homeschooling thing that suddenly fell on everybody during the pandemic, whether you call it homeschooling or just supervising from home lessons that the teachers deliver Mm. um that there's more than one way of seeing it and that once you get that tension between different viewpoints it seems to me that both for fiction and for poetry you've got something there that needs exploring you know you've got multiple voices and differing contesting views of things and then of course there's the perspective of the teacher too and i have to say that i've been really shocked during Uh, these years of the pandemic to see the degree to which what I think is a contempt that's often expressed for teachers and an undervaluing has just been unabashed. You know, it's just been like you're the babysitters, deal with it, Um, at least insofar as it looks from the outside because I'm not teaching um, at present. I've uh, taught tertiary at earlier periods in my life and obviously did the dip ed secondary. But uh, I've just looked at that and thought it's no wonder it's hard to get people into that professional to keep them once you've, you know, this is very topical at the moment, but it's something that uh, many people are turning over all the time. And particularly if they have kids in school, because it's a very uh, tough situation. Yes. So, so on the one hand, as I say, it sounds like I'm really down on school, but I also know there's a, a lot of people in there trying to do the best job they can with the kids and they're not getting paid properly and they're not getting social respect you know and I think sometimes maybe that comes from the fact that all of us were at school and under the supposed prison water teachers and maybe there's a residual resentment that persists right into adulthood like we don't grow up or something and we still somehow have a chip on the shoulder toward the teachers 
you know, when people say things like, oh, they get so many weeks of holiday. Oh, they work nine till three. Oh, they have an easy life. No, try it in their shoes. It's not easy, you know. Yeah, yeah, so, yeah. So, yeah, I wanted to yeah. say all of that around those pandemic poems because it does sound like an attack on school. And I think it is an attack in some ways on the state institutional notion that what Illich is saying about the advertising agency to, that works on trying to make you believe you need society the way it is. I think I do have a problem with that. I think that, you know, there's a lot of difference in kids and we don't treat them very well. But at the same time, uh, I think that a lot of people are trying to do a good job and I think a lot of people have made it more inclusive or tried to despite the system. So that's probably a whole lot more than what you wanted to hear. It's a big download. But no, that's but what's driving the poems really. And, you know. Yeah. No, I think it's worth unpacking that because I think when you get to those poems, um, there's strong opinions held in them and I think it it, it may well help people to have that that context mm. but as you're speaking I'm remembering moments where I really did feel like I was in prison at mm -hmm. school and other mm -hmm. moments where I felt like thank god I'm at school because I don't want to be at home yeah but I guess the obvious question is we probably don't want to go down the path of like how should we teach poetry in schools but mm -hmm. I, I guess I just wonder what your did you have any formal education in in how to write poems because the the technical control that you have in your poems is not something that just happens so i wonder well, where that comes from thank you for that that's that's um quite comforting to know that, that somebody finds that there is technical technical control there um i would say i know that for a lot of people they say school wrecked poetry for them and enough people say that that one has to take on board okay there must be something for some people where it does that that you know that like that Dickinson poem, Split the Lark and You'll Find the Music, this idea that you're actually killing the thing you love by overanalyzing or whatever, that wasn't my experience at school. But then maybe I was lucky and I, I did have a very um, amazing, well, later he was my literature teacher, but in year nine we had a quite innovative teacher who introduced what was essentially a creative writing unit. Now we're talking 1978, so this is really unusual as, a, as an option or elective at school to be able to do this called writing enrichment and he got us to write poems and he would do things like bring in a Manet painting a print of it and say I want you to write a poem or a story just responding to this so we're doing ekphrastic work even though we don't know that's what it is at 14 you know or he'd say okay today we're going the school had a patch of bush nearby today we're going out to sit in the bush for the whole period and you sit on a log and write a poem bring it back to class and we'll hand it in and this was just remarkable. I mean, I didn't mind the rest of school. I didn't like school socially very much, um, but I didn't mind the school work. But that was just like, okay, there's another universe here. There's something that's beyond um, learning, but is actually art and interacting with the world. So that was, I was lucky there because, you know, that wasn't widely done then. And he was later on also my literature teacher. So there was a very, um, for me, like for some other poets I know, quite a few, the role of the teacher was really big in making me want not only want to be a poet, like taking us to that moved reading with the actors that I mentioned, but also just saying this matters, this this is something with, you know, really vibrant literature classes of reading not just poetry but novels and um, plays as well. Um, and in the case of Shakespeare, of course, that was plays as poetry. So I suppose a kind of immersion through school because at home... Uh, we had a couple of poetry books, but it wasn't a poetic household. My grandmother was a great lover of literature. 
she died when I was 14. So I wish I had known that side of her better. I was just beginning to. So, yeah, I suppose I was, yeah, in order to become a writer, I was lucky to have had that experience. But I'm not alone in that. A lot of people have had those profoundly life-altering literature teachers at school or perhaps at university if they if they go on. Absolutely. Yeah. Mm. It, it only takes one. Yeah. <laughs> um, I'm going to read to you, I hope this isn't too cheeky, but I'm going to read to you from an article written uh, by your husband, John Kinsella. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, written in 1996, Towards a Contemporary Australian Poetics. Mm-hmm. And this is, this is how John describes influence in your case. So he writes, Ryan and others often cite as influences poets such as Jennifer Strauss, whose strong taut lines are to the point without fuss, but are rhythmic and consciously poetic. Mm-hmm. And the immense range, technical control and powerful rendering of the human condition in Judith Wright and Gwen Harwood. Yeah. Ryan names as a haunting influence Harwood's Barn Owl, mm-hmm. a poem which uses confession as its structure, but unexpectedly deals with the inherent power of and desire for destruction. Mm-hmm. Does, that, does that all ring true? Yes. Um, yeah. yes. <laughs> I, wasn't, I wasn't lucky enough to do Gwen Harwood at school. I came to her later on, but certainly uh, Judith Wright, and same with Jennifer Strauss, I read her later, but I would say absolutely. And it's not that I only studied or read women poets, but those particular poets, especially Judith Wright, I have to say, were just enormous for me. I mean, the thing is, I used to sit, we had a, a Judith Wright um selected at school that was a set text which fell apart the spine <laughs> the spines didn't last and I had this kind of loose book I used to in the holidays sit on my bed cross-legged reading this Judith Wright book so it wasn't a case of I have to study this at school it was the what have I found mm. you know what is this um yes and um so I suppose that mode and that also sense that they dealt with very large and sometimes con- confrontational things while not shying away from also writing about the business of women's lives so you had you know, the idea of the big world out there was there in their daily life writing as well. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And just to echo what you said about not only reading women poets, this mm. article also mentions John Donne, George mm. Herbert, yes. Gerard Manley Hopkins. Mm-hmm. And when I read that, I thought about your lines and I thought, yes, they do have a bit of a Hopkins yeah. flavour to them for sure. Yeah, I used to be very obsessed with Hopkins when I was young. And I think that a lot of poets do have that kind of you know, really get stuck into his work because he's so inventive and so different. And I still have a very soft spot, very soft spot for what he writes. I want to zoom in on another poem from Rose Interior called Elise, mm-hmm. just to talk about this question of the line. So yeah. I don't quite know how to do this in a way that's not going to sound terrible, but I'll try <laughs> to pause at the end of each line. Yes. I just love the way that these lines tell an entire story. There's only mm-hmm. five of them. That suitcase others might think useless to a woman of minimal travel. Once east, once north, and once to Europe for the last son's wedding, late in both lives, unrepeated. So those, I don't know, I've, I've got a teacher at the moment who has asked the class, what is your line doing? Mm-hmm. And I, I looked at those five lines and I thought every single one of these is doing something very important to progress the story to keep the reader on the hook for the next Mm -hmm. line and and to tell a new part of this person's life 
and I, I, I assume just huge, huge amounts of work goes into making those those decisions. And I don't know if that's... Um, yeah, that is true. Yeah. And this one did probably change not only its line breaks, but its format quite a bit as it went. It used to be a lot more disparate and less stanzaic. It went through an editing process um, where suggestions were made. And also I just altered some things anyway. But yes, it is something, I'm not one of those people who gets fixated on line breaks. You'll have people saying, you can't break a line on that word or this word. And I think for me, it comes down to that same thing that I said before, if I just don't believe there, I do believe there are rules, but I don't believe rules are absolute. Mm. I think that if there's a rule and you can break it effectively, then go for it, you know? So, but like when I'm editing other people's work, like for book publication, I will always, if there's a line break that looks like other people will really hoe into it and say, why did you do that? I'll say to them, some people will get upset by that line break, but it's up to you, you know, because I think it's good to be aware that I've, I've seen the most um, astonishing um, rigidity about where lines should be broken or not. And if a poem's not actually metrical, there's quite a deal of flexibility, I think, in what you do with it, how you create that kind of stepping process with um, enjambment. Um, is one of the tools of a poem. And so the more flexibility you have, the better there, I think. But it's still, I remember once many decades ago hearing somebody say of another poet, uh, a, a man say of a woman poet, actually, which struck me as part of the context at the time, though I may be wrong, her line breaks are without volition. Mm. And it just seemed to me that's something where it's your interpretation that they're without volition, but it may be that you haven't seen the volition that was not within Australia either. So it's not sort of naming any names and it's very long ago. But that whole idea of assuming, I never assume something's without volition when I read it because I assume that a certain process has gone into it. And if the text is very open or very different, I try to assume, well, I mean, as a reader of poetry, try to assume that there's a reason that that might be the case and that the shortcoming might be in me as the reader and I'll go back and work harder, you know. Mm -hmm. so, so I suppose when I write maybe I arrogantly have that expectation of others too, that they'll read it thinking, okay, this person is actually trying to write a poem, so I'll assume that's what they've done. And it, it's a bit like with book reviews that review a book for what it isn't, you know, the kind of thing? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah, absolutely. To me, I assume that the book is doing or the poem is doing what it's trying to do and take it from there. Yeah, I suppose it's that thing too of you never want to be accused of, you know, another man writing about a woman poet, you don't want to be accused of observations broken into lines. Mm -hmm. But when I read your work, yeah, I mean, this, this teacher of mine also said not every line break has to be a fantastic coup. Mm -hmm. And that's definitely true in these poems. Not every single line break is like screaming out at you going, look at where I broke this line. Isn't that a genius move? Yeah. But there's enough, you could tell that there's enough thought going into them. And yeah, that's that's look. It's a very it's a very nerdy line of questioning, but that's what I. That's all right. To that's all right. I think it's an important one, not least because it's one some people will make a lot of fuss about. Mm. They just will. And um, to me, that's as strange as making a fuss about a rhyme because a lot of a lot of that is in perception. You know, like when people first started to use um, uh, slant rhyme or partial rhyme, it seemed very uh, not only radical and strange to people who were used to formal poetry with complete rhyme but it seemed like they were doing something damaging or ugly to some readers and it's just a matter of a shift in reading taste you know once mm. you get free verse you're going to get experiment with the line break i think that's that simple and 
as your teacher and you have said, it doesn't have to be, it doesn't have to be fully with volition all the time, you know. Mm. Yeah. I think there's so much in the world of poetry and perhaps in the world of the arts in general. So much is said about you should this and you should not that. And some of the questions are just no-brainers, you know. Um, they just don't seem to matter to me or they seem to drain a lot of energy that it, that doesn't bring much. Yeah, it's like wasted energy mm-hmm. <laughs> completely. Um, I do want to ask you about publishing because I believe Rose Interior is either your ninth or your tenth full-length tenth, collection. Yeah. Tenth, tenth full-length yeah. collection. Congratulations. Yeah. Thank you. What would you say to listeners who are about to embark on the process of trying to get their first collection published? Because I think you might have worked with, well, not not every single press mm-hmm. in Australia, but a lot of different ones. So you would have had mm-hmm. a lot of different experiences working with different publishers. What should people look out for? What should they, you know, try to yeah. make sure happens? Sure, yes. And I, I've also worked quite a bit with people on first collections and so on sometimes in workshopping and sometimes as editor. So it is kind of uh, something I think quite a bit about. One of the things that I think is, it's always been important, but I think it's increasingly expected, is the sense from the publisher's side that you actually engage. When I say with the poetry community, I don't mean you have to hang out at readings, and though people may do that, but I mean actually read other people's work. Because I think, um, as you would have seen also, that a lot of people starting out in poetry um, don't necessarily read a lot of other poetry. Sometimes that's because they haven't come across it yet. But And it doesn't mean you have to go out and write like those other people, but just having a general awareness of the kind of conversations that are going on in poetry, both content-wise and formally, mm. um, helps. Because then you know, you know, is this publisher the kind of publisher that's going to do the kind of book I've written? You know, if you're a, a new poet and you want to send a manuscript somewhere, you're going to want to have tried to publish some of those poems in journals. And you're going to want to have a sense of the publisher you're sending to and not send something that really isn't the kind, you know, if it's a deeply experimental and out there avant-gardist kind of press, it's not going to publish certain kinds of poetry and vice versa. Um, So there's that. But also I've noticed what something that's increasingly the case is being able to articulate the vision and the project that you're doing with this book because not only will that often be required these days at the point of submission you know give us a paragraph of what your book is about which is very hard for poets Mm. because um sometimes you just want it to be the the poetry you say i've said what i had to say in the poems i don't want to really spend a lot of time paraphrasing the poems but you still have to find some way of being able to articulate that's hard with the first book because you're finding out as you go along um but yes and to also the thing even before that step of the first collection is the being dogged or what some people would call arrogant for many people is an important quality to develop. Well, for other people, arrogance possibly comes naturally. I don't know. Probably in the poetry <laughs> world, you get both extremes. But what I mean by that is it's so easy to be discouraged, uh, to get rejections and not to realise that the biggest names out there for what that is worth have had rejection after rejection after rejection, but you don't see those. It looks like constant success. And so a lot of the time I find that people who are very new at poetry, I don't mean people with a book written, but people just starting to write, feel like that will never actually happen. The poetry will never come into book form because it's been rejected. But everybody who got there, well, there may be some exceptions, 
but almost everybody who got there in terms of getting a book published started with rejections. That's all, it's part of the process. That's just part of the process. So you have to get a thick skin or, as I say, a sense of, I know what I'm doing, even if you don't understand me. <laughs> you know. But so it's interesting, actually, because I've, I um, have noticed that an episode I did recently about rejection is steadily climbing in terms of its listen count. Mm-hmm. And I yeah, I think there's something here, though, about the thick skin is really important. Like you need mm-hmm. to not be able to, you need to be able to not crumple yes. every time you get a rejection. But yes. I think every rejection tells you something as yes. well. And yes. what would you say to people who are just, you know, they're, they're two years in, three years in, they they just mm-hmm. keep getting rejected? Mm. Well, once upon a time, people would have said, you don't self-publish because self-publishing is, you know, wrong or it's the route to destruction or it means you're a no good person who you know couldn't get someone to take you on but of course there are fewer and fewer venues anyway now that publish poetry than there once were okay and um the fact is that like it says in an Yang Yu poem the rain on the roof is self-publishing so <laughs> if people <laughs> if people are very uh unable to get something taken on because of whatever reason i don't see that there's any problem in it's the same with magazines if something's not there is a lot of people particularly in australian poetry and it's probably true everywhere talk about poetry as if it was a pie and it only had a limited number of slices and somebody else took this many so i'm not going to get any and i just don't think i think there's infinite pie and i think if there isn't you bake it does that make sense yeah so you go out and you make opportunities and i think part of why i think that way is coming from Western Australia in an era before the internet when we were such an isolated place and so far removed from all the places people see as um, holding power and handing out the goods and publishing you or not, you had to actually take on board that I'm going to do this anyway and if the opportunity is not there, I'm going to make it somehow, create it in some way, set up a little magazine and get everybody to publish and make a literary community. I just don't believe, I don't believe it's like a bucket that can all be consumed and if somebody misses out, I think you just make more a bigger bucket. Mm. That may sound idealistic, but I do actually think that's your only option in those. Uh, and it, it, um, it's the opposite view of, you know, how you get kind of coteries of people who bicker and fight about who got what and begrudge other people's success. I just think that um, that's that's, again, one of those waste of time mindsets. There's no point in it. Now, that doesn't mean I enjoy when something gets rejected. <laughs> but seriously, if I had something I couldn't publish for whatever reason and and it wasn't because it had problems, because as you say, I think you have to learn from rejections too, particularly if you get rejections from several publishers or friends or people who are all saying the same thing, then you have sure. to say, okay, yeah. I've got to, you know, my radar for my readers has to be out there. But if you believe in something and you think it's working, there's no um, shame for me in taking your own route to getting it out there. I just don't see a problem with that. What I have a problem with is, you know, firms that might pop up and exploit people with vanity type publishing where they charge the earth to publish something and then you've left with goods you can't sell or whatever. That's not what I'm talking about. And I think in the old days, the stigma that was on that self-publishing is because of that, is because Mm -hmm. there were so many shonky uh, outfits that would make money out of people who really were not getting their work up to the level that it would have needed to be you know, not getting edited or whatever. So I don't know if that's answered your question. Definitely. And I haven't got any self-publishing plans anytime soon, but I just think <laughs> that uh, you have to not give up hope, but, yes, you have to have your ears open and listen to what's being said about the work too. So yeah. not total arrogance. Not total arrogance. That's good. <laughs> <laughs> 
Well, I guess just as a sort of a last question then, if given Rose Interior is your tense and thinking about that issue of, you know, moments of rejection, moments of success, if you look back over those 10 books, mm. what, were the, what were the peaks and troughs? Okay, the troughs, it's always easier to talk about the troughs. <laughs> the troughs would be that in there there were huge gaps of not writing where I thought I'm never going to write a poem again, where I had whatever disillusionment for whatever reason, um, not necessarily personal disillusionments, probably more to do with the state of the world, you know, that where you can get to that point of saying, what is the point of writing, you know? And then you get past that and you say, well, it seems whether I like it or not, it seems that that's what I am. It seems that that's what I do, so I'm going to try again. So those would be the troughs. And so a book like Scar Revision came out after one of those troughs. And uh, that a lot of it was written during the Gulf War, not long after my son was born. That's why it's got the baby poems in it, when we were living in the United States. And so it was just very difficult time. And a lot of um, what's in there reflects that. So I'm not saying the book was a trough, but the period that, you know, of, of that whole uh, shift in the world was difficult. Um, the high points, probably any time a book, it's like I said before of not going back to look at my work. Any time a book is taken and done and printed, that feels like a high point because it feels like it's been delivered. It, it's a strange psychological process, you know. Okay, round it off, gone, go away now. I'm writing mm-hmm. the next one. That's how it works for me. I don't know if that's how it works for other people. I might get you to finish off by reading the title poem from Rose Interior. Thank you. And maybe if you wanted to talk a little bit about about the title and about Rilke and and that reference. Mm -hmm. Well, there's an interesting connection there because when I've been in troughs, one of the things I find somehow kickstarts me again but also makes me feel at least tenuously connected to poetry even if I can't if I feel I can't write a poem, is to go back to Rilke, to this little fat little volume, which um, is wonderful, has everything in it. It's amazing to think it's tiny, but it's really thick Mm. to have written that much and think, okay, just pick something and translate it if it grabs me or try to. There are some abandoned ones. Mm -hmm. Um, So a number of my books have had one Rilke translation in them as part of the theme. And uh, this one, because of this whole, I mean, he wrote a lot about roses in his French poems, which is just amazing to think he wrote like 400 or more poems in French as well as in German. Um, You know, it's enough to write that many in your mother tongue, you know what I mean? But uh, the rose being all the way through them. And this one very much looking about at the ideas of inside and outside, interior and exterior, was what appealed to me uh, to use. And also the fact that there are other plant, you know, flower poems in the book. So it kind of linked with those. Um, So I'll read it. In German, it's actually called The Rose Interior, but I've just uh, clipped that and called it Rose Interior. Where is there for this inside and outside? On what kind of ache do we lay such linen? What heavens reflected in this, in the inland lake of these open roses, so insouciant? See how at liberty and loose they are as if no trembling hand could ever spill them. They can hardly contain themselves. Many of them are gorged and overflow from their interior into the days that evermore fully close over till the whole summer becomes a room, a room within a dream. Thank you. Thank you so much. 
so great to actually meet you in person. Yeah, likewise. Yeah, <laughs> maybe one day we'll be in the same state at the same time. Oh, and I know. Meet you.